0: Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast, where we feature the stories of activists, lawyers, and storytellers on the front lines fighting for justice and liberation. If you want to know more about the Center for Constitutional Rights and our work, visit our website at ccrjustice.org. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter, Frontlines of Justice, and we'll keep you up to date on important developments and exciting events near you or online. You can also make a donation to help us keep doing the vital work of supporting our partners, movements, and communities. As always, don't forget to subscribe to The Activist Files and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And now, here's The Activist Files podcast.
1: Miss Helen, how are you?
2: I'm fine, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. Very excited for this conversation today. I'm excited to learn a lot more about this and I'm also excited to share what you know. So we're just gonna jump right in. When did you first learn about the Rosenwald Fund study? Where were you? How did you feel?
2: I learned about the Rosenwald Fund study 12 years ago in April, 2010. However, I think it's important for me to elaborate on the events leading up to this discovery. As a teenager, I watched the um the late Alex Haley's miniseries Roots, the mm-hmm. saga of an American family. And when it ended, I vowed to someday tell the story of how my family fit into the fabric of America. I guess you can say Roots birthed my insatiable appetite for genealogy. Amazingly, <laughs> In my research, I discovered that both sides of my family may have known the Haley's. My mother's family is from Tennessee and they lived on the Henning farm, same farm as Simon Alexander Haley. And when Simon Alexander Haley left Tennessee, he moved to Arkansas. And my father's family is from Arkansas. And his sister Aunt Louise was a student of Professor Haley's in the 1940s at the University of Pine Bluff. My Aunt Louise, she often recalls Professor Haley speaking about Kunta Kinte and Chicken George in his lectures. And in 2009, um, I retired from the Air Force and I started conducting oral interviews with family members. And one of my cousins and I started discussing the hereditary illness that's in our family. And he disclosed that his sister suspected that our family was part of the Tuskegee syphilis study. In our childhood, we were pretty much forbidden to talk about the family illness because what went on in the family stayed in the family. But after I pondered her suspicion, suppressed childhood memories and and conversations came back to my remembrance. And as the family historian, I had yet to unveil any family ties to the state of Alabama but it didn't stop me from trying to connect the missing pieces. And in February of 2010, in celebration of Black History Month, I was the guest speaker on Herbert Air Force Base, along with the late Chief Master Sergeant Walter Richardson. Chief Richardson invited me to his upcoming ceremony to formally acknowledge him as a documented original Tuskegee Airman. And he also shared with me that someone had recently gifted him with a copy of my book and he was enjoying it. So in April of 2010, I attended chief ceremony and pieces of my fragmented story were seemingly linked to his story. So on the way home, I was a bit puzzled and I was like, speak Lord, (laughs) speak to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I recalled my youngest son's Black History Month project on Booker T. Washington. and He had images of Tuskegee University on it. So I called the Tuskegee National Center for Bioethics and Research in Healthcare. And I explained my cousin's suspicion to the executive director. He then informed me that there was actually a study before Tuskegee that many people are unaware of called the Rosenwald Fund Study involving six counties in six different states. So you can just imagine I listened intently as he named each state, Mississippi, Virginia, Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, and Tennessee. When he said Tennessee, my 12 years of being a slave to this research officially began. During the Great Migration, my family migrated from Tennessee, from Western Tennessee to Kentucky and eventually settled in Ohio. And that's where I was born. Ironically, when I was stationed in Hawaii, my favorite class at Wayland Baptist University was research writing methods. So in retrospect, I guess as I look back over my life, God has been preparing me for this research from my earliest childhood memory when I was two. And my grandfather traumatized me. But if you want to know more about that story, I recommend you invest in my book, Seven Days in the Fire, at www.HelenKnowell.com or on Amazon. So let's backtrack for a bit. Can you tell
1: us just what the Rosenwald Fund study is? And from your understanding, who started this study? And how is it different from the Tuskegee Syphilis Study?
2: It's different from the Tuskegee study, definitely. After World War One, many soldiers returned to their countries with sexually transmitted diseases, and there was a disparity in the modes of attack for treatment. The League of Nations, currently the World Health Organization, proposed a global effort and convened a committee of experts on syphilis and cognate subjects to conduct an international investigation to standardize the treatments. Investigation involved five countries, one of which just happened to be the United States. In 1928, Herbert Hoover was elected president, and he ran on a platform that promised the exploitation of science to the prosperity of the nation. And prior to the League of Nations um, standardizing the treatment in 1934, the United States decided to conduct their own study on blacks in the American South through the Rosenwald Fund study. Toxic heavy metals were used as a form of treatment, and it's very different from Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in a Negro male, also known as the Tuskegee syphilis study. The Tuskegee study involved black men in Macon County, Alabama. The Rosenwald study involved all ages and sexes in six states and numerous counties, and according to online documents, the, um, the Rosenwald study involved one county in each of the six states. But this information is inaccurate because according to the Rosenwald Archive, the study was conducted in five counties in the state of Mississippi alone. Holmes County, Mississippi, conducted the study on pregnant women, and ironically, Holmes County had one of the highest rates of COVID-19 in the country. In Tennessee, they deviated from other states and counties and conducted the study on family units because Black families were known to congregate. The Rosemont study used um, Wasserman blood tests to diagnose victims, and approximately 40,000 Blacks were tested. These particular blood tests, they were prone to false positive results. And during that time frame, black standard of living was very low. Incidents of um, pellagra, malaria, tuberculosis, malnutrition, they were all high, right along with infant death rates. Many of their illnesses and diseases were actually associated with poor sanitation in their diet. In 1926, Dr. Thomas Perrin Jr. was appointed the chief of the Public Health Services Division of Venereal Diseases. And in a 1932 report of investigation, he said, initially, the Rosenwald Fund looked upon the study more as a demonstration than studies. And then he acknowledged that he was responsible for that terminology. He suggested the modification and said the project should be considered as scientific studies of administrative methods. He also said the Negro groups offered an excellent opportunity for the experimental application of principles, which are sound from a scientific standpoint. Interestingly enough, in 2018, the University of Pittsburgh, their board of trustees removed the name of Dr. Thomas Perrin Jr. from his public health building, Perrin Hall, because his legacy included ties to racist and unethical medical experiments in Tuskegee and Guatemala studies.
1: I'm going to go back to your family for a second and without you spoiling too much of what's in your book. Just what exactly was the taboo with your family that time? And just even in you explaining the difference who was being studied and like the fact that they really focused on the family units in Rosenwald. How do you think that affected your family? What was it that your family members were diagnosed with or how is it similar to um, the studies of the participants in Tuskegee
2: and Rosenwald? Well, as I mentioned previously, Tennessee deviated from the other states and they conducted a study on family units because black families were known to congregate and families um, in Tennessee They were studied as opposed to individuals being studied in the other states. So the Public Health Service experimented with much heavy metals in some counties and little in others. So according to my research, the study participants in Tennessee received what they considered much treatment. And the heavy metals that they used were mercury, neo-arsphenamine, and bismuth. And um, they sought participation in the study from black clergy, and black superintendent mm-hmm. of schools. The Negro population was addressed in meetings, after church services and in schools. And they uh, collected specimens from assembled groups in churches, schoolhouses and in country stores. They, um, the method that they used, that they, re- they massaged the mercury into the skin of the abdomen and the back of the patient with a specially devised belt. And according to the um, Minamata Convention on Mercury, mercury poisoning adversely affects women, children, and through them future generations. For so blacks were treated in fields and in schools. The state of Virginia conducted the study in the university medical center founded by Thomas Jefferson and trainees experimented on the participants And Virginia provided case records in the international investigation because the patients received clinical treatments versus field treatments. So when you ask about my family and what my family members were diagnosed with, as I continue to elaborate on heavy toxic metals, the scientific research that they discovered from mercury poisoning in Minamata, Japan, determined that mercury causes Neurological degeneration penetrates the placenta and has a congenital effect. So in 2017, the Minamata Convention on Mercury, which is a global treaty to protect human health and the environment from the adverse effects of mercury entered into force. And according to the convention, like I said earlier, mercury adversely affects women, children, and through them, future generations, (laughs) The U.S. was the first country to sign this convention, and they paved the way for a new era to protect human health and the environment from the adverse effects of mercury. Um, Metallic mercury is elemental mercury, and elemental mercury is what they used in the Rosenwald Fund study, and it penetrates the central nervous system. And in May of 2019, Dr. Bryce from the Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry stated in writing, We know that mercury in a pregnant woman's body passes to the fetus, in example, generation one, and may accumulate there, possibly causing damage to the developing nervous system. And he said this may include brain damage, mental retardation, incoordination, blindness, seizures, and inability to speak. To date, nine of my family members from three generations have succumbed from symptoms presumably linked to the toxic heavy metal poisoning and central nervous system-related symptoms. Their symptoms include and diagnosis include brain damage, mental retardation, incoordination, blindness, slurred speech, balance issues, neuropathy, and poor stamina, the majority of which Dr. Bryce from the Agency of Toxic Substance and Disease Registry mentioned. So in the Rosenwald Fund study, participants received treatment. In the Tuskegee study, they were treated with placebos and were denied treatment even after the discovery of penicillin. In the Guatemala study, the participants were intentionally injected with bacteria that caused sexually transmitted diseases. And many of them have been left untreated to this present day. So Macon County, Alabama, was initially part of the Rosemont Fund study. And when the study allegedly ended, that's when the federal government salvaged it and it became known as the infamous Tuskegee Syphilis Study of Untreated Negro Males and it lasted for 40 years. The documents within the Rosenwald archives reveal that the Tennessee Family Unit Study was also salvaged and established in all Western Tennessee counties because of its distinct family unit nature. My family with the hereditary illness is from Western Tennessee.
1: Wow, that was really powerful. Thank you for that roadmap. So I'm gonna backtrack with this next question and ask you to expand on the story behind the Rosenwald Fund study. Who exactly was Julius Rosenwald and what was his involvement and how did the government later intervene?
2: Julius Rosenwald, he he was a philanthropist, and he was also the owner of Sears and Roebuck in the early 1900s, and he was influenced by Booker T. Washington's book, Up From Slavery. Their friendship led to him donating seed money to Tuskegee Institute and other historically Black colleges and universities. Washington used a portion of the seed money to further expand Black education in schools, And after Washington died, Rosenwald, well, actually, it was during Washington's lifetime. After Washington used some of that money to enhance a nearby school, it inspired Rosenwald to donate money towards building the Rosenwald Schools Program. Ultimately, Rosenwald contributed to building over 5,000 schools for blacks in the segregated South. And after Washington died, Rosenwald established the Rosenwald Fund for the Betterment of Mankind, and the fund focused on three main areas, Black education, Black health care, and making health care available for average Americans. So assumingly, in 1929, his favorable reputation that was gained from Southern Blacks may have been the catalyst for the United States Public Health Service's request to ask Rosenwald to jointly fund this project dealing with syphilis in the Black population in the South. So Rosenwald accepted, and the study became known as the Rosenwald Fund Study. And according to um, Rosenwald's grandson, Peter Ascoli, he said his grandfather was unaware of the pervasiveness of the study when he accepted the public health services request. So the study began as, as a pilot program in Mississippi at the Mississippi Delta and Pine Land Company, and then it was expanded to five additional states. So prior to Trump leaving office, he signed the Julius Rosenwald and Rosenwald Schools Act of 2020. And the bill primarily directs the Department of the Interior to conduct a, um, a special resource study of sites associated with the life and legacy of Rosenwald. And the goal of the legislation is to establish a national historic park. Celebrating the legacy of Julius Rosenwald and his partnership with Booker T. Washington to establish the Rosenwald schools throughout the segregated South. And currently the special resource study is underway.
1: For listeners, Ms. Helen is highlighting the H.R. 3250 public law, also known as the Julius Rosenwald and the Rosenwald School Act of 2020, where the government will be formally commemorating Julius Rosenwald for his personal and financial contributions to 15 southern states during 1912 to 1932. It will also direct the Office of Interior to consider plans to create a national park and an interpretive center in his honor. So let's stay in this realm. It's obvious that Rosenwald had quite the influence, but so did these studies on Black health and more specifically your family. In a 2014 article, you state that there is no way to know how many people have been affected because its participants' names are not included in the documents. So just how many people do you think have been affected and how do you want the government to respond to this? And I know you've already mentioned um, some nods to COVID and numbers matching with that. So I just wanted to give you the space to expand on that as well.
2: That <sighs> was very loaded. <laughs> yes, well let's unload it (laughs) (laughs) considering that um, the study was conducted during the great migration when millions of blacks were migrating to various regions throughout the country with heavy metal poisoning and the adverse health effects that it has um, mercury poisoning has on future generations the sheer number of people affected is unimaginable the ramifications of the Rosenwald study may have also been global. They may have had a global effect just based on the number of blacks that also traveled abroad. Mm-hmm. So ponder this for a moment, if you will. When you think about the the many sicknesses and diseases impacting people of color, is it plausible that they are linked to the use of toxic heavy mercury in the Rosenwald Sun study? And when you think about the Blacks and the high rates of COVID-19, and I mentioned previously about Holmes County, Mississippi, conducting a study on pregnant women, and they were one of the highest counties in the country for Mm COVID-19, could those rates also be linked to the Rosenwald Fund study? Surgeon General Hugh Cumming and Assistant Surgeon General Tolliver Clark, they were both associated with the Rosenwald and Tuskegee studies and the American eugenics movement. Eugenics theories influence public health programs. So eugenics was largely developed by Sir Francis Galton, I think his name was, as a method of improving race. And during the 20th century, it was discredited as unscientific and racially biased. Mm,
1: not there very surprising.
2: <laughs> um, that's,
1: that's not very surprising. So as it stands, there's no formal link to quote-unquote black blood that happens in families and this high mercury exposure is known but unknown in the books and so um, how would you like the government to address that issue like is it a formal apology is it them creating a research committee outside of what's going on with the Rosenwald Schools Act but how would you like them to rectify the lack of knowledge in these health disparities between Black communities, and especially now that we're like COVID is very real right now, and it's affecting so many of us. But if there's a area of the world that has a certain group of health problems already, and how these extra viruses and things affect that isn't studied, yeah, I'm gonna stop talking now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, the um the government really does need to address this issue because. First and foremost, the term bad blood, it did not originate in the Tuskegee syphilis study. Mm -hmm. The Public Health Service used that same terminology in the Rosenwald Fund study, and Blacks were never educated about bad blood. In the positive cases in the Rosenwald Fund study, they were informed that their blood was bad and they were requested to report on a certain day and hour for a second Wasserman blood test and a physical examination. Now, remember when earlier when I mentioned Dr. Thomas Perrin, he spoke about bad blood in his report of it, um, investigation and he said, where bad blood carries no more of a stigma than bad teeth, he also stated, Many of the natives in the backwoods did not recognize the difference between syphilis and gonorrhea, and distinguished between bad blood as not such a bad disease than a few that a few shots won't cure it. He said syphilis is just a word to a majority of the native, and he referred to it as a typical example of misdirected health education. So, all things considered. Historical precedents have already been established for public health service conducted studies. Mm -hmm. President Clinton, um, he apologized to the participants of the Tuskegee study in 1997 and President Obama apologized and initiated an investigation in 2010 for the Guatemala syphilis inoculation study. And President Obama said he expressed his deep regret to the Guatemala president and apologized to all those affected. Obama then stood up the presidential commission for the study of bioethical issues to formally investigate the study. And they produced a report, ethically impossible. It just takes me back to um, a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he said of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. Mm-hmm. So keep in mind that during the Rosenwald Fund study, black physicians were excluded from membership in the American Medical Association, resulting in them forming the National Medical Association. And at that time frame, the medical profession was racially divided, separate and unequal. And blacks were treated in the fields while syphilitic whites re- received preferential treatment in Hot Springs, Arkansas by the Public Health Services Director of Venereal Disease, Dr. O.C. Winker. So in 2008, I'm pretty sure that's when it was, the American Medical Association, they issued a formal apology for more than a century of discriminatory practices to the National Medical Association. And then moving forward, they pledged to right the wrongs done to African-American physicians, their families, and their patients. So blacks, they willingly cooperated in the Rosenwald Fund study, primarily because it was the first time that many of them received what they considered government-sponsored healthcare in America. So how can the CDC and Health and Human Services justify apologies and investigations for Tuskegee and Guatemala, but consistently deny an apology and investigation to the African-American participants and descendants of the Rosenwald Fund study. I'm sure Rosenwald and Washington are probably turning over in their graves, waiting on the United States to formally acknowledge the truth about the study and to ultimately leave a legacy of their partnership. And an essential part of the healing and restoration initiative should also be to resurrect Rosenwald's focus areas, black education, black healthcare, and making healthcare available for average Americans. And like its counterparts, Tuskegee and Guatemala, a formal presidential apology and investigation is clearly warranted for the Rosenwald Fund study.
1: Yeah, I feel like there is a lot. <sighs> Think of so many avenues of how black people are disenfranchised in the health world, and just like black maternal deaths um, and how high of a rate that is now and just like a disregard in general for historical health and how it is now but I know you've been researching this for so many years and you've reached out to many agencies to garner attention for this study and to shed more light on what happened before Tuskegee and so can you share any of those avenues you've already taken
2: absolutely (laughs) wow
1: (laughs) (laughs) very accomplished
2: after um President Obama apologized to the Guatemalans in 2010. In 2011, I reached out to the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. They said that they thought that the study also warranted an apology and investigation. They asked me um, to do a presidential summary, and I sent it to the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. They were very helpful, but the individual who worked there wasn't knowledgeable about previous studies and how the um, what the process entailed for the apology and investigation. So he, in turn, sent my information to Health and Human Services. But I never heard back from there. And after that, I contacted um, Dr. Suzanne Reverby. Now she was the one that unearthed the Guatemala study and she was also instrumental in working with the Tuskegee study. And Dr. Reverby provided me a contact number at the Center for Disease Control, but she also informed me that the individual that she worked with who was instrumental in her obtaining the apology for Guatemala had recently passed away. So when I contacted the CDC, they denied the apology on two claims. First, they said that the study was not an experimental research study. And they also said that mercury poisoning does not have a congenital effect. So I provided them with proof. I provide the CDC with proof from the Rosenwald archives that the study was indeed an experiment because several documents contained within the archives revealed that it was experimental. Mm-hmm. And then I shared pertinent information with them about the Minamata convention on mercury that the US was a party off, and they still denied it a second time. So in, in 2014, I contacted the United Nations Environmental Program in New York, and they referred me to the Environmental Program in Kenya. So they ended up appointing a special repertoire on human rights and the environment, and they produced an allegation letter for the United States to respond to. The United Nations said that the study was a violation of civil and human rights, and they expressed concern about the right to life and health of the subjects and their descendants, including the right to informed consent regarding medical or scientific experiments. The U.S. responded to the United Nations from a report dated 1936. So when you think about the infamous Tuskegee study and the fact that it was still in effect in 1936 and that the Public Health Service at that time was known for publishing skewed reports, as far as I'm concerned, that particular 1936 report should be considered erroneous. (laughs) Additionally, the report is no longer in print. So I had to contact a librarian to obtain a copy of the report. And when I re- obtained the copy, I dis- that's when I discovered that the Tennessee Family Unit Study didn't have an expiration date. And within the same document, that's when they talked about much, much mercury was used on family units in Tennessee, in the Tennessee Family Unit Study. So I contacted my congressman and the Congressional Black Caucus and they both were instrumental in trying to help me obtain the apology and investigation. And they also helped me to obtain a copy of the United States response to the allegation letter. In 2018, I believe, I reached out to the World Health Organization concerning their role in the international investigation and the use of toxic mercury. And they informed me that they would get back with me in due course. I have yet to hear anything back from them. Additionally, I reached out to several other agencies, but prior to President Obama leaving office, he responded back to me and he stated that the, um, the CDC and Health and Human Services, that they were prepared to readdress my concern over mercury and its congenital effect. So during the Trump administration, I reached out to the CDC and the Director of Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, and that's when the director acknowledged in writing that mercury has a congenital effect and adversely affects generations, but then he had the audacity (laughs) to deny that the Rosenwald Fund study ever existed, and I'm like, "Are, are you kidding me? even though I sent him numerous documents from the Rosemont archives to validate the study's existence, he blatantly said that it Mm -hmm. didn't exist. And I was like, okay, Lord, um, um, I'm really getting frustrated with this whole process. But it just kept me, you know, the fire still didn't go out. So in March of 2021, I contacted the Department of the mm-hmm. Interior concerning the um, the Julius Rosenwald and the Rosenwald Schools Act of 2020 that President Trump signed. And they informed me that they had yet to receive the funding for the special resource study. And they reassured me that they would stay in close communication with me regarding the public meeting forms. And after that, I contacted um, my senator, Senator Tim Kaine in August of 2021, and he forwarded my request to President Biden, but I have yet to hear anything back from them concerning the apology and investigation. I also sent my information to Health and Human Services in February of this year, and the last conversation I had with them was in May, and they assured me that they would get back with me soon, but here it is, July, and I haven't heard anything back from them. Last month... Mm a representative from the national park service informed me of the virtual public meetings, which were scheduled earlier this month. And I I took advantage Mm -hmm. and um, went online and I was part of the meetings. And I also provided comments and recommendations and suggestions to them concerning the, um, the Rosenwald schools act of 2020.
1: First, I just want to celebrate you and all your work in this because very often We find out something that happens in our history, become really passionate about it, and people really don't realize how long it takes, how much energy you have to have to keep digging and looking for this research, especially when we're in a time where people want to discredit that research and come up with their own narratives. But what do you think may be the hardest part of this journey moving forward? Will it be the lack of responses, the fact that despite the existence of the documents, you know, many of the participants are unknown. What exactly would it take to have the apology you deserve, but also rectify the situation and make sure it doesn't happen
2: again? Wow. Considering, let me just tell you what's what's driving me in this research, Mm -hmm. what has driven me first and foremost. And then I'll tell you what it takes, what I think it will take. And I and I appreciate you celebrating my research because it has been a journey. But it's been a worthwhile journey because my research is um, because of a promise that I made, a blood pinky promise that I made to my cousin Beverly when we were kids. <laughs> so in 1972, that was the year that, the, that Peter Buxton blew the whistle on the Tuskegee study. And I was eight years old at the time. And ironically, that was the same time frame that I met my bedridden Aunt Christine. And I was, and I was drawn to her. So occasionally after school, I would stop by her house and just visit her because she was bedridden. And, you know, a lot of people just don't have the heart for people who are ill. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I was just drawn to her. And oftentimes I I witnessed the doctor with the medicine bag making house visits. And I remember one time when I walked in the room and while the doctor was giving uh, my uncle a shot with this long needle. (laughs) Needless to say, that's when my phobia of needles began. And, um, whenever I asked about my aunt's condition, I was told she had polio, but strangely enough, I had met another another um woman with polio, and she could walk so naturally, as a child, I was confused because my aunt had polio and was bedridden, and the other woman had polio, and she could walk so i I put on my inspector gadget hat because I always been very inquisitive and I started asking questions to different family members. And um, my mother, Queen Bee, may she rest in peace. She was very forthright when I asked her and she, um, she said something along the lines of um, supposedly it's related to syphilis or sexually transmitted disease. And um, when I met my aunt Christine's da- granddaughter, Beverly, we instantly connected. And Beverly was several years my junior but we still played together. Mm -hmm. And whenever we played, she would always grab hold of my hand and she would squeeze it so tight and she would leave these piercing fingernail indentations on the backside of my hand. And she consistently asked me to do a blood pinky promise for me to agree to always love her and care for her no matter what. Now, the promise was easy because... Our family's mantra is blood is thicker than water and the elder always looked after the younger. So oh. it was, it was a wrap. And um, Beverly and I, we always pray together as well because, and mostly we prayed for our family members to be healed because it was so many of them that were sick. Beverly's mom also had the family illness and in my spirit, I sensed that Beverly had it. We never spoke about it. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually, over the years, our families moved to different cities and it prevented us from seeing each other as much as we would have preferred. In adulthood, I enlisted in the Air Force and Beverly eventually enlisted in the Army, but she was discharged because of her illness. So in 2007, I I was home on leave and my mom received the dreaded phone call. Beverly was in Mercy Hospital. And her doctors predicted that she wouldn't live much longer. Unfortunately, phone calls like this were common and cyclical in our family. First, it was the onset of the illness, then being wheelchair-bound, then being bedridden, then the assisted living facility, then the dreaded phone call, and lastly, death. Um, We rushed to the hospital and ran into Beverly's sister in the parking lot and we quickly embraced each other and then said our goodbyes because once again we were all in this state of shock. And I remember walking into Beverly's room and she was bedridden so I stood beside her bed. It was deja vu. I've been in this place before. But it was in the 1970s and I was standing next to my bedridden aunt Beverly's grandmother so immediately I asked my cousin Beverly I said do you want me to pray and she had this angelic smile on her face and she said of course cousin so she reached out her hand for me to hold and I prayed uncontrollable tears streaming down my face I prayed for healing but I I could barely contain myself and when I left her room I glanced at the um, back side of my hand and there was visible fingernail indentations on the back side of it that Beverly left. And to me, it was a reminder of our childhood blood pinky promises. It was the last time that I saw her alive in her earthly body because she died the following year in October of 2008. And I retired in 2009. For me... A promise is a promise. I vow to always love and care for my cousin no matter what. And I'm going to continue in my fight for justice until justice prevails.
1: That's so powerful. Thank you for sharing that.
2: You're welcome. Uh,
1: Yes. I guess the last question that I will leave with is just how can we support you in this? What do you want folks to read? Where do you want them to rally just to bring more attention to this study and the effects that it possibly continues to have and has had on your family and other families.
2: I would like for them to, probably by the time that you air this broadcast, the public comments for the Julius Rosenwald and the Rosenwald Schools Act of 2020 mm-hmm. will probably have expired because they expire the 31st of July but I would like people to read more about the story at Mm www.HelenKnowell.com. And eventually I'm going to be adding some information to the website for people who may be from some of those same counties. Considering that the National Park Service is trying to name a national historic park after Julius Rosenwald, I support that. Mm-hmm. but on one condition and one condition only. Because according to the National Park Service, during the Rosenwald, Rosenwald actually um, contributed to building over 5,000 schools in the South. and Approximately a third of African-American students in the South attended these Rosenwald schools.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So if the public health service treated these studies subjects in these same schoolhouses, prior to Congress or presidential approval to establish a national park honoring Rosenwald and Washington's partnership of Rosenwald schools, President Biden needs to right the wrong of the Public Health Service and issue the long-overdue apology and investigation for the Rosenwald fund study, because my family suffers from generational trauma and generations of Americans have been severely traumatized by the egregious use of heavy, mercury, heavy toxic metals prescribed in the Rosenwald Fund study. So in keeping with the Rosenwald Fund, Rosenwald's vision of for the betterment of mankind, the soul and soil of America needs healing and restoration. And the apology and investigation is warranted.
1: Mm -hmm. I think there can always be an and. I always say that we can celebrate Rosenwald and we can acknowledge the harms of the past. Right. Um, It never has to be a separate thing. It can be harmonious.
2: Absolutely.
1: Thank you so much for this conversation. You're so welcome. I I thank yeah, you, and very I think the
2: I thank the Center for Constitutional Rights, because and I, I need to back up because you guys were one of the um, agencies that I reached out to, and Attorney um, Gallagher. She was very, very open, and and she asked a lot of questions, and she informed me that when i reached out to her i think it was um, some i think it was in 2020 time frame she had mentioned that they were in the process of establishing a regional office in the south and as soon as it mm-hmm. was established that she was going to pass on my information to them and true to her word as soon as it was established they contacted me and that's how you and i connected and i'm just very grateful for the Center for Con- Constitutional Rights reaching out to me and giving me this opportunity to do this podcast. So I, I thank you guys for for the attention that you have given this story and just for giving me this opportunity to share this story with the American public. Thank
1: you so much. Um, yeah. And hopefully we will see you later. Yeah.
2: Thank just you. Just, I just, appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> And please let me know if you have any more questions. Absolutely.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. Just a reminder to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you want to find out more about our work, visit our website, at ccrjustice.org. That's all until next time on The Activist Files.